Good evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's say our mission prayer together. Dear Lord, give me the grace to renew my life, to be active in the Church, to grow in faith, to be firm in hope, to be perfect in charity, to be sincere in prayer, to overcome temptation, to seek your mercy in confession, to love the Mass and Holy Communion, to be prepared for death, to look forward to heaven. Amen. Our Lady of Lourdes, Saint Joseph. Welcome to this second talk. We heard from Abbot Hugh yesterday on faith. And today I'd like to talk a little bit about worship. I've entitled this talk, It's the Mass That Matters, which was a sort of tagline really used, especially since the Reformation in this country, as Catholics sought to defend the Mass and love it more. It's the Mass that matters, and it can still speak to us today. I'd like to talk a little bit about the worship of God in the liturgy and prayer. Now, there won't be a separate talk on prayer per se, because prayer really comes into all of the talks that you're going to hear this week. Father Hugh has already spoken about some aspects of prayer yesterday. It'll come into today's and all week. But today we're going to focus on worship, the worship of Almighty God. And to begin, I'd like to read you a passage which you'll know very well from chapter 2 of the Gospel according to Matthew. Very beginning of chapter 2. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will govern my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. When they had heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. What I love about that familiar story of the Magi, the wise men, the three kings, 
is that it's all about finding the child in order to worship him, in order to worship him. And when they do find the child, that's exactly what they do. They go in, they fall down, and they worship him. Worship, to adore, to give the honour to God which is his due. It's a veneration we only show to God, to worship, to adore. You might say colloquially, I adore ice cream or I adore chocolate cake, but we don't literally mean it. We adore God and God alone. There's a homage that we can offer which is only given to God. And these three kings who are not Jewish, who come from the East, call them astronomers, magi, wise men. They're looking for the king to be born and they want to worship him. Herod is doubly afraid. He's afraid because he's heard that there's a king born in his kingdom. And he's also afraid because they call him God. We've come to worship him. We've seen his star. And he then says, oh, well, you better let me know, cunning Herod, who sees the double danger, let me know that I might come and worship him too. And there's that lovely line, when they went into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Remember that in Hebrew, the word house, bait, it's actually the same word they use for the letter B in the alphabet, Aleph, bait. Bait means house, it also means temple. So there's a sense of a double meaning here. They, when they went into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Isn't that what we do when we come into this bait, this house, this temple? We come in and we see Jesus with Mary, his mother, in this church dedicated to her, and we fall down and worship him. We genuflect, if we're able, we bow, we show reverence to him. We come in like the wise men, rejoicing to have found him here, and we fall down and worship him. It's the only response that is adequate for Almighty God, and it's a response we reserve for him, an honour of adoration, of worship due to him. After this talk, we're going to have a little period in which we can adore Jesus present in the Blessed Sacrament. But I'd like to talk about this idea of worship in the church. When I'm talking tonight, I'm going to focus on what is the public worship of God, what the church calls the liturgy, the sacred liturgy, pardon me, is the public worship of God. All of that is public because it's the whole Catholic Church throughout the world, united, who do exactly the same thing. Liturgy defined, if you like, is the Holy Mass, as the principal act of adoration of God, and all the other sacraments, and the divine office, or the prayers that the priest says in the breviary, and all monks and nuns say, and perhaps you might say as well, from time to time, join in with evening prayer, or morning prayer, or night prayer, prayer during the day the divine office. Those three things, the mass and the sacraments and the divine office, is what the church calls liturgy, the public worship of God. We have lots of other ways to worship God. We'll distinguish those by calling them devotions or private worship of God, 
And even though we might do them together, that's what they are. That might include your personal prayers, the morning and evening prayers you say, the rosary, the stations of the cross, devotions, extra ways to worship God. They're sanctioned by the church, but the church defines very clearly what is the public worship of God that we must all do. There are some rules about public worship, whereas with private devotions, there aren't so many rules. So, for example, in the Mass, we can't just do what we like. There are certain rules about what we can and can't do. There are some options that we can legitimately choose, but we basically have to follow what the Church wants us to do. Whereas, when we say the Rosary or our private devotions, we can chop and change mysteries or we can do a shorter version if we're doing it with children or what have you. And there's this obvious distinction which is made. When I was taught this at seminary, our professor of liturgy said to us that if we wanted to, we could do the Stations of the Cross backwards. We all looked at him as if he was completely crazy. He said you could do the Stations backwards if you wanted. Instead of going from Station 1 to 14, you could start at 14 and go to 1. He said, you might not think it makes sense, but you're free with, public devo with private devotions to do that. And then he said to us, actually, boys, he said, I bet that the first time the stations were ever prayed, they were prayed backwards. And we all looked at him as if he'd gone stark maybe mad. And he said, by our blessed mother on her way home. Isn't that lovely? Private devotions, we're free. Now, sometimes the distinction gets a bit blurred because when I'm saying Mass on my own in the Priory Chapel, we might call it a private Mass, but of course no Mass is really private. It's still the public worship of God, whereas all of us gathered here tonight might not be involved in the public worship of God, but we're certainly performing devotions together. So I want you to imagine two scenarios to make the point, because sometimes it's difficult to understand. It's difficult to distinguish. Scenario number one is this. You can imagine, if you will, your parish priest, Father Kevin, sat on the end of his bed after a long day in his pyjamas, with his breviary out, reciting night prayer, reciting compliments. He's had a busy day, he's in his pyjamas, he sits on the end of the bed, opens the breviary, and recites night prayer. That's scenario number one. You'll never see it, so you'll be able to forget that imaginary scene after this evening. Scenario number two, Pope Francis is in the Vatican Gardens with five or six hundred people. They're at the Lourdes Grotto in the Vatican Gardens, um, which is not nearly as nice as the one here, I might say. And they're all praying the rosary. All right, five, six hundred people. Which of those two scenarios is the public worship of God and which is a private devotion? Oddly, Scenario number one of Father Kevin in his pyjamas is the public prayer of the church that he's joining in with. He's got to, as a priest, as we all do, join in with the divine office. And he's saying a part of a prayer which is being said or sung throughout the whole world. That's the public worship of God. Whereas the Pope with five or six hundred people saying the rosary might be a, more of a scene, more of an event, but it technically counts as a private devotion. So do you see what I mean? You could, these distinctions are a little bit odd sometimes. But the public worship of God in the Mass and the sacraments and the divine office is governed by the Church with certain rules. And it's that that I want to speak about because we take it for granted, especially the Mass. It's the Mass that matters after all. 
And perhaps we can work out a little bit more some of the, little, some of the symbols that are included in our public worship of God and what they might mean to us. The wise men, when they come in and find the child, kneel down. They fall down before God and worship him. They recognise that this child is a king, they've seen his star, but they also acknowledge him as God. And the worship of God is always accompanied with symbols and signs. We've inherited some from our fathers in the faith, the Jews. The Jewish people who worshipped God in the temple, and the book of Leviticus gives whole lists of rules about how that worship was to be enacted. We've borrowed some of the signs from them, or rather, we've continued to use them. The two examples that come to mind immediately are lamps, or candles, and incense. In the temple, there was a seven-branched candlestick, always lit. Light in the temple. Lights symbolising, of course, the light of God, enlightenment, the light of Christ for us, Jesus, the light of the world. What about the other sign of incense? The Jews used incense in their sacrifices. I think they probably had to, because if you're slaughtering animals in a temple, it's going to get pretty messy and smelly, I imagine. And incense had a practical use, but of course, it was used for the worship of God. Incense was offered to God as an honour. But we still do that, don't we? And of course, they symbolise something to us. The lights, Jesus, the light of the world. The incense, as the smoke goes up, so our prayers ascend to heaven. And as the smoke settles in the church, the graces of God, you know, symbolised coming down upon us. That's all very lovely and true. But there's something about those symbols which is really important. And that is that both the candle and the incense are completely used up. If you think about it, the wax is burnt up, or the oil is burnt up. The incense is consumed on the charcoal. They're good symbols of our worship because we offer everything to God. Those symbols spend themselves in the worship of God. And they remind us, too, that we should spend ourselves in God's worship. When we were baptised, we were given a candle. It was given to our godparents, probably. Receive the light of Christ. Keep the flame of faith alive in your heart. Our life is a bit like a candle. I know of one convent of nuns where the nuns make profession and receive a candle. And at their death, that candle is lit while they're dying, usually, and then as their body's laid in the chapel, and they just let the candle burn out as a symbol of a life spent in the service of God. So candles and incense are really important symbols. They're not just pretty, although they are. They're not just lovely for worship, though they are. They're not just symbolic in a kind of interpretive way. By what they do, they speak to us of our worship. You'll remember that in the Jewish temple, some of the animals offered were completely burnt just given to God, they were what the Jews called the Holocaust offering, a total burning, a total destruction, and that was a total sacrifice offered to God. Other sacrifices, you'll remember, the Levites were allowed to eat of some of the meat that was offered in those sacrifices, just the Levites, just the priestly families. They did have a sense in which there was a limited communion, if you like. Things were offered 
and then the priestly families could partake of. The other sacrifice which everyone got to eat, of course, is the Passover lamb. The lamb that is offered without blemish, and then it is cooked and eaten quickly with unleavened bread to remind the Jews of their escape overnight from Egypt. The Passover lamb. And that they could eat. And Jesus Christ, of course, is our Passover lamb. The lamb of God offered up to the Father who takes away not just the sins of Israel, but the sins of the world. And we are allowed to consume his sacrifice. We are invited to communion at Mass, to partake of the wedding feast of the Lamb. But our worship of God involves that sacrificial offering. The Mass is a sacrifice. A sacrifice which is Christ's sacrifice to the Father. Remember, we offer that sacrifice through Christ, through him, with him, and in him. And all of the prayers of the Mass end, don't they? Through Christ our Lord. We offer his body and blood to the Father because it's his offering. And he gave us, in sacramental signs of bread and wine, a way of perpetuating that sacrifice. But that's what we're doing. The new sacrifice. This is the covenant, at the chalice of my blood, of the new and eternal covenant, the New Testament, a new sacrifice for a new covenant. I wonder whether we think of ourselves as being spent in the worship of God, like the candles and incense, within that great offering of the Mass. Because we are called to do that, and it's quite extraordinary when we think about it. There's a little moment in the Mass that you'll have all seen a hundred times, more than a hundred times, and it symbolises just that. And it's at the offertory, when the priest has offered the bread which will become Christ's body, and then he fills the chalice with wine, and he adds to the wine a tiny drop of water. Why do we do that? Why do we add a tiny drop of water to the chalice? You might already be thinking, is it simply because in the ancient world that's how they drank their wine? They always diluted it. It's almost certain that the wine would be slightly diluted at the Last Supper. The ancient world did that. Apparently the wine they used to produce was a kind of thick, quite strong thing, strong drink, and it had to be diluted to make it to palatable the wine that we would recognise today. Is it just of an ancient tradition, because of an ancient tradition? Perhaps. Perhaps. After all, our rites and rituals go back a long way. Maybe it should remind us of the miracle of Christ at Cana in Galilee when he turned gallons of water into gallons of wine. I love that story. Isn't it comforting? Our Lord likes wine. He made an enormous quantity of it, and it was very good. Should it remind us, then, that just as that was a miracle, his first miracle, so at the Mass, we're about to experience a miracle too. This wine is going to become his body's blood. Should we be reminded of a miracle to take place? Perhaps. I think the hint really comes in the prayer that the priest says as he pours a drop of, wine, of water into the wine. And you'll never hear it because it's one of those prayers the priest says quietly. 
There are a few of those in the Mass. But if you look in your missal, you'll be able to find it. And it just so happens that that prayer is extremely old. We know that because we have old missals from Rome that show that it was a prayer used for Christmas. Well, we began with the story of the wise men, so there's a little bit of continuity here. Christmas, the colic for Christmas in the old, old, old days, back in the early church, has changed since then. But we still put it at that moment in the Mass. Through the mystery of this water and wine, it begins, may we become partakers in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. May we become partakers in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. We can see that water and wine are a symbol of divinity and humanity, something extraordinary and something quite ordinary. And that little drop of water is our humanity. It's you and me. That little drop of water represents you and me. In the old days, it used to be blessed just before the drop went in. The wine wasn't. That symbolises Christ. The water symbolises you and me. We need a blessing. And that little drop of water is us. You can't separate that drop of water from the wine once it's in. That's it. It becomes part of the wine. Not enough water to change the wine completely, but enough just to go in and become absorbed in it. And we pray that we too might be absorbed, taken into the divinity of God. It's an extraordinary thing. No wonder the priest says the prayer quietly. It's a very bold prayer. We'll be caught up, taken up, absorbed into the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. Rather like the incense and the candles that are spent in the worship of God, we're called to be absorbed into God. Not to destroy, not to be destroyed, not to lose ourselves, but to find ourselves. To be participators in the Mass at a deeper, deeper level. Not just by showing up, not just by saying the responses, but by being part of it. That little drop of water becomes part of the sacrifice of the Mass. It can no longer be separated from that wine. And we pray too that like the bread and the wine, a miracle might happen to us, that we might be transformed, transfigured, changed. That our encounter with the Mass, our encounter with Christ in the Mass, will change us. We said that prayer on Sunday as the prayer after communion, actually. We prayed that after having received Holy Communion at Mass, we might become what we've received. We've received the body of Christ, and we pray that we might become the body of Christ, the church. That's why it's the public worship of God, because it's the whole church that is united in doing the same things. And we're called to participate in it, to be a real part of it. Consumed, but not destroyed, spent in the worship of God, but not disappeared, absorbed, but not hidden, we find ourselves in the mystery of the worship of God. Rather like the burning bush that Moses saw and worshipped God in. The bush was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed or burnt up. Do you remember that? God says to Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. 
and we worship God here, we come in to the temple, we see Jesus and his mother Mary, and we fall down and worship him, and we're called to be part of his sacrifice, his offering of himself to the Father. There's a line in the first Eucharistic prayer, called the Roman Canon, where the priest says, we offer it for these people here present, that's you, and they offer it for themselves and those who are dear to them. And that's a reminder to us that we too are offering ourselves in the Mass. We're called to be living icons of worship. The candle and the incense are used in the worship of God and then they're gone. We need fresh candles, we need more incense. You and I, as long as we have life, are called by Almighty God to worship him and to enter into that mystery of his divinity. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful thing? We have to make that encounter with Christ in the Mass really count. We have to make our participation in the public worship of God really change us. Our Holy Communions are an extraordinary moment of grace where in fact Christ comes to dwell in us, poor sinners that we are. Quite right that we say we're not worthy of it. Because we're not, really. But we're still called to come in and have that relationship with Christ. And so our attitude is one of adoration. Adoration. In the Latin version of the wise men's story, they came into the house, saw the child, and they fell down and worshipped him. The word used is adoraverunt eum, for worshipped him. They came and adored him. Adoration. What does it really mean? There are two lovely explanations of the word adoration that I want to share with you, which I like a lot, because the word seems to come from an odd place. I love etymologies and where words come from. It's very exciting. Adoration seems to be ad, towards, and os oris, which is a mouth. And one idea of adoration is that it's like a kiss. You know, a union of mouths. It's a peculiar way of thinking of our worship of God. But we don't just worship him and he looks and says, well, that's grand, excellent. You know, thank you, do it again. Come back next Sunday. Our relationship with God in adoration, he comes down to us to meet us. It's like an embrace. There's a sense in which our adoration of God is a kiss, an act of love, an act of homage, but one which is reciprocating, where God condescends to come down to us. And if that is a good etymology, then there's another explanation too that we can think of. Because one scenario where that might be needed is for CPR, or some kind of emergency breathing into us of life. The kiss of life is sometimes needed, isn't it? Perhaps our adoration of God is where he actually rescues us, brings us back to life, breathes his spirit back into us and saves us. He gives us the first aid of his grace. It shows at least that we need adoration. We need to worship God. He hasn't just commanded that we worship him publicly in the Mass and the sacraments and the divine office, that we come Sunday by Sunday and on holy days of obligation. 
He hasn't just commanded it for his benefit. One of the prefaces we use in the Mass says that we, he has no need of our praise. It's for our benefit that we come and share this sacrifice. It's for our benefit that he invites us to come and save us, to embrace us, to give us his life. Holy Communion is something we take advantage of because it's accessible to us. But what about when it's not, or when it's less accessible? There are two stories I'd like to share. They're both from parishioners that I have, uh, that we have in Chelmsford, and they both have dementia. And they've been a real example in, to me. They've preached a gospel to me simply by their struggle. And it's changed the way I think about Holy Communion. One lady is extremely old, and she has quite severe dementia, and she's very lucky, really, because she's cared for at home by her daughter. Her daughter, actually, uh, is a care home manager. And she manages with her sister to do on and off shifts so that she can care for her mother professionally, I suppose, but at home. It's a very lucky situation for this elderly lady. But for various reasons, a priest hadn't been for a while, and I was asked to go, and it had been a while since my last visit, and I was a bit worried that her dementia may have got more severe in the intervening time. And I went in, and she was very jolly, and you know, I said hello. Uh, I said the prayers, and she jabbered along, and I always just say the prayers as if she understands every word, took her through the act of contrition, the confidio, and so on, prepared for Holy Communion. And I was just about to give her Holy Communion when I saw in the corner of my eye one of her daughters shaking a bag of sweets at the bottom of the bed. And I thought, well, this isn't really the moment, is it? You know, carry on, Stephen, focus. But what's she doing? She's shaking this bag of sweets at the end of the bed. Just carry on, give Holy Communion. So I did. And as she was jabbering on, the poor lady in her bed, jabbering on, talking nonsense. And as soon as I said the body of Christ, she opened her mouth, stuck her tongue out and said, Amen, receive Communion, made the sign of the cross. Why was the daughter shaking a bag of sweets at the end of the bed? Because in the time in between my visits, they didn't want their mother to lose the habit of receiving communion. So every day, they'd given her a milk chocolate button on her tongue so that she didn't lose the ability to receive communion. That is love. That's love. Not only were they caring for her in the best possible way, but they knew that the most important thing to her was to receive our Lord. And I'm telling you, I couldn't understand a word of her gibbering, jabbering. But she said, Amen, stuck her tongue out to the communion and made the sign of the cross. And for a brief moment, she and Christ were united in an embrace of worship and love. The other case is also a man suffering with Alzheimer's. He's not quite as advanced as this lady. And his wife <coughs> brings him to church. But he also struggles to receive communion, and he, struggles, he doesn't quite remember that that's what you have to do when you come up with communion. So rather than giving him communion in the usual time, I've now asked him to wait behind after Mass and I give him communion afterwards. And the reason is, it involves a bit of a conversation. I have to say, John, would you like to receive communion? Oh, yes, I'd love to. 
but you can't quite remember how to do it and what it is. And I said, Jesus really wants to come to you in the Blessed Sacrament. Oh, yes, yes, I like that, yes, yes. And I said, well, would you like to receive? You can put your hands out or open your mouth. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh! And then I say the body of Christ, he receives. And then there's a pause. And then he just grabbed my hand and said, thank you. Thank you. It changed the way I thought about it quite considerably. Because that man had forgotten some of the mechanics. But he really wanted to receive. And once he had, all he could say was, thank you. The mechanics of the Mass, the way it works, are important to us. They can teach us. But we must never take them for granted. The benefit we have from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered on the cross is that we can have communion with him. That's what he wants. He said, do this in memory of me. Those people's memories had faded. But when reminded, they remembered. And Christ was able to break through the dementia and the fog that seems to descend. Break through. I know many, many priests have the same stories, by the way. The Holy Ghost can break through all of that grey and get to the essential. And that's really what our worship of God is about. And yet, if we're honest, and I'll be honest too, sometimes we get distracted in the worship of God. Sometimes our minds are elsewhere. Sometimes we think, oh, not the book of Ezra, and we fall asleep. Or we think, not another long sermon. The Mass can't be boring unless you are boring. Because if we open our minds to what's going on, it's incredible. You and I are invited to become partakers in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And when the wise men saw that humanity, they fell down and worshipped him. And they weren't Jews. They weren't of, Judah, of the house of Judah. They'd come a long way, but they found what they were looking for. You and I are members of the church, whether we were born into it or whether we've come to it later in life, we're members of the church, called to the worship of God, called to the truth, called to become part of the greatest thing that has ever happened on earth. It's the mass that matters. Father Faber, wonderful priest in London in the 19th century, called the mass the most beautiful thing this side of heaven. And truly it is. It's a foretaste of heaven, because we have a union with Christ that we will only experience again once we are in heaven and see him face to face. We're invited to adore. We're invited to spend ourselves in prayer. We're invited to be part of the public worship of God, which he deserves, which is due to him, which belongs to him, which is governed by his church, but which is beneficial to us which saves us, which helps us, comes to our aid. If we're going to be effective Catholics going forward from this mission, if we're going to be effective at preaching the gospel, part of our sharing the good news is to deepen our knowledge of the Mass and to share that joy we have at Mass with others. It's the Mass that matters. It matters so much that martyrs
gave their lives for it in horrible ways because it's the one thing we will never compromise on that Christ took bread and blessed it and broke it and said this is my body given for you he took wine and blessed it and said this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins do this in memory of me we have to make it a priority it is about life his sacrifice involved his death and at mass there's a separation isn't there of the elements if you think about it the priest consecrates the bread first this is my body it becomes christ's body the body includes blood doesn't it but yes usually except that now we're going to separate the blood from his body this is the chalice of my blood poured out for you just as it was on the cross that's the sacrifice christ's pouring out of his blood separation of the elements in the mass there's another moment though another moment you'll have seen a hundred thousand times and that's that at the annual stay, the Lamb of God, the priest, breaks the host, symbolising our Lord's death and the sharing of his body that he wants. And then a tiny particle of the bread, is, of the host, is placed into the chalice. And that symbolises the reunion of his body and blood in his resurrection. In his resurrection. His body and blood reunited miraculously after his death. And his first words to the apostles as he goes into the upper room where they're all assembled in fear, he breaks through the door and says what we say at that moment in the Mass. Peace be with you. Because when we come to communion, we don't come to receive dead Jesus. The Jews could eat a dead animal that had been offered to God. They couldn't very much, very well eat a live one, could they? But we don't come to receive a dead Jesus. We don't come to receive his corpse we come to receive his body risen and glorified and alive we come to worship him in the tabernacle living and waiting for us in order that we might have life and have it to the full and as we go forth from the mass changed by that encounter we have to live with his life in us his life which was once offered for us in pain on the cross is now victorious and alive and it calls us to be alive to the things of God to be sensitive to his worship to be aware of what's going on to fall down recognizing him with his mother Mary and adore him I'll finish with this thought and then we'll have a moment to adore him St John Mary Vianney the curé d'Ars, the parish priest of Ars, and the patron saint of all parish priests, and a wonderful saint, said this. When we leave the holy banquet, we are as happy as the wise men would have been if they could have carried away the infant Jesus. When we leave the holy banquet, we are as happy as the wise men would have been if they could have carried away the infant Jesus. We have that privilege of seeing him, recognising him, seeking him and finding him, falling down before him and worshipping him, adoring him, and then taking him with us. That's what he wants. Our worship of him is in order that we might live, that we might be 
icons of incense and candles, living symbols spent in his worship, given to him, consecrated to him, transformed by him. It's the Mass that matters. It's the Mass that matters. It's the Mass that changes us. It's the Mass that is at the heart of the new evangelization of our country and of the world. And it's the Mass which is always the pinnacle of the Church's worship. Let's learn to love the Mass, learn to love the Blessed Sacrament, learn to visit him, coming with our private devotions too, to honour him present in this sacrament. Let's pledge that we will not give up on the worship of God. It's the principal and greatest privilege we have. And let us remember how to treasure Holy Communion for the young as well as for the elderly and for the sick. Let's learn to adore every day and give God the worship that is his due. O sacrament most holy, O sacrament divine, all praise and all thanksgiving be every moment thine. O sacrament most holy, O sacrament divine, all praise and all thanksgiving be every moment thine. O sacrament most holy, O sacrament divine, all praise and all thanksgiving be every moment thine. We're now going to sing a hymn as we prepare for benedictions. If you'd like to stand to sing the hymn, and as we come out, if you'd like to kneel down then uh, to, to uh, have a